Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking once more in chapter 13, this time in verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, starting with verse 44. Now, where we come, just for a bit of context, where we arrive now in Matthew's gospel in this section on the kingdom parables, there's a bit of a distinction now. Um, Two sets of fours kind of run here. There have been four previous parables at this point in time uh, that Jesus has spoken before the crowd. Where we turn now, though, we're starting a new section of these parables where Jesus, uh, in the privacy of seclusion, just with the disciples, uh, is speaking to them, uh, these parables in particular. And there's a, a slight distinction that comes with this and, and maybe some, some different emphasis that we'll see uh, from, from these parables that we'll look at today. But the main point that we'll see, and I think it's a fairly obvious one, but the way that it, it gets brought out is uh, actually kind of shocking. But the main point, here's what Jesus wants us to see this morning. Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom is worth more than anything. We're about to take up and read, but before we do, let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Almighty God, you have spoken to your people, and you've given us a word, O Lord. You've given us the divine Uh, word spoken forth through the prophets and the apostles. So, Lord, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. And so, Lord, this morning, feed our souls with your word. Give us now eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. So two two obvious sections here running under the main point that Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom is worth more than anything. First and foremost is finding the kingdom. And we see this in the the first parable here, uh, or similitude as some have argued, uh, the the parable of the hidden treasure. A fairly common one that, you know, a man is going and he works through this field and then suddenly he stumbles upon a hidden treasure and upon finding it, he goes with joy and sells everything that he has to buy this field. And there's, there's some contextual reasons, though, and cultural reasons why this is somewhat significant, uh, and why also this is not 
uh, culturally a very strange thing. Right? What, you know, if we're out, out back here throwing a, a stick with a dog and suddenly you stumble upon treasure, it's a little bit more unique. But in uh, the first century Jewish culture, this was not that rare. There weren't banks back then. And it's also this hotly contested sliver of land that is constantly being turned over uh, for, for rulership time and time again. And so it was actually a fairly common practice of what would you do uh, to hide your, your treasure. You can't take it to the bank. Uh, you probably shouldn't store it in your house lest robbers come and take it. So bury it in a hidden field. And we all probably have uh, some sort of Meemaw or something like that that grew up during the Depression and stuffed her mattress full of cash and then complained that she had back problems. And Meemaw, a safe is probably an easier way to go and your back will be better for it, but nonetheless, fine. Uh, but also there's Jewish laws that go with this. So many times what uh, would happen in this day and age, people uh, after the, the area was under siege, they would bury treasure in the field, then uh, the, the land would be taken captive, they would be exiled and move, and then eventually die in captivity. And so it was actually fairly common practice for, for somebody to, to come across a treasure like this. Not an everyday matter, but uh, a, a matter enough to where they had laws concerning it. And, and during this time, if you were to, to, let's say, you were going to go work a field, or you were a servant for somebody, and you're turning over the land, and then suddenly you hit a, a big thump, and upon discovery, it's a, a large chest full of treasure. There were Jewish laws to say that once you go and buy the field, that that treasure is by law yours. So you're able to pull it out, and, uh, and there you have it. And, and so what, what Jesus is actually getting at is, is something that was fairly common knowledge, that, that somebody would go and find this treasure, but before even picking it up to carry it away, they would actually go and buy the land. But if you knew that this, this land had with it not only the value of land, but also a, a, a tremendous treasure, then why wouldn't you go and sell everything you have in order to buy that one thing? Now, one of the key words here is that they go with joy in doing so. And wouldn't we all, if we suddenly stumbled upon uh, an inheritance that was going to completely change not only our lives, but generations to come, we would also go with joy and sell all that we had with it. Now then, because of this, there's one interesting thing, one of the big distinctions between this particular section of parables and the previous, is there's no interpretive key. Th things are, are left somewhat wide open, um, and there have been a, new, uh, a number of different ways in which people have interpreted this, but uh, there is a common interpretation, right? A man being a general person, uh, the, the land being uh, somewhere in the just general vicinity, but the treasure being either uh, Christ or the kingdom. Um, one early church father sees it as wisdom itself, which is why we read from Proverbs 2. Uh, but any number of different things. The main point, though, for us to get from this is, is that the person sees the value of the treasure, they recognize that this is something worth giving absolutely everything for. They can see it. And it's not something they do begrudgingly. They don't come to the treasure and see it and then think for a minute, 
is it really, really worth everything that I have? Um, is this a good deal? There's an immediacy to, to their, their recognition of the intrinsic value of this treasure. Sell everything that you have with joy. Go skipping as you go to buy this plot of land because this treasure is worth more than everything. There's an implication, though, that runs with this that really should strike a chord in each of us, and that is this. What keeps us from seeing the value of the kingdom? Or what keeps us from seeing the value of kingdom, moreover, with joy? Sometimes it can be the sin of loving our own kingdom more. Sometimes it can be, and I think probably in our day and age, there's a, a, a special uh, circumstance here is the busyness which uh, connects to our own kingdom. Sometimes, though, it's, it, it, it's, it's this human issue of being stuck in the moment. Time is a tricky thing, isn't it? Being in the present is, is so difficult because we, we, we long sometimes to look back and, and romanticize times before, and other times we look ahead for hope. And, and so finding yourself in the moment to recognize the value of the kingdom can be an exceedingly difficult thing. And we do this, too, with uh, just life in general, right? Sometimes as, as you're, you're sleep-deprived because your one-year-old is uh, cutting all of her teeth at the same time. That's not a subtweet to mine, but maybe it is. <laughs> it can be pretty easy to, to forget about the kingdom. What are you really thinking about? I just want to sleep, and so, you know, at Inside, and thankfully, one of the beauties of a healthy congregation like this is you are surrounded by fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ who have the great joy to encourage you by saying, it will never get better again, all right? <laughs> you think this is bad, just wait. <laughs> and so, you know, something that, we're, that I'm, you know, coming to terms with is that this moment-to-moment -moment business is going to be difficult here on out. And so this concept, this idea of if we can just get past this phase, then we'll pause and recognize the value of the kingdom. Or if we can just get, get the kids out on their own, then will we'll recognize the richness and the glory and the value of the kingdom. It's like it's our empty nester plan. Once we get them out, then we'll have the time and the space and the freedom to really sit and contemplate and, and with joy recognize the glory and the value and to cherish the kingdom itself. But I think if we do that, then we miss... We miss the kingdom, don't we? Isaac Watts, um, uh, born during the, the late Puritan era, he was a man who was constantly sick. Uh, moment to moment for him looked a whole lot more like, am I going to be breathing between now and the next moment? He, he knew something of what it was to be concerned in the moment-by-moment -moment life, yet he stops and he marvels 
And he calls us to do the same as he looks upon the value of the treasure that is the kingdom of God. He says this, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If only we saw the cross of Christ for what it is. If only we saw love, infinite and divine for what it truly is. If we only saw the king in all of his glory for who he truly is. What must be our reply? It is this. That if the whole world were mine, it wouldn't be enough. I would trade the whole realm of the universe for this treasure. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We struggle with that, though, don't we? Because the kingdom and divine and infinite love, how abstract how ethereal, how theoretical it is. We can't tangibly hold it. But actually, in some case, we can. We can actually take this very same parable and read it somewhat differently. We can read it actually as Christ the center, which is, it, it has been done before. Previous parables in the whole previous section, who is the man in the field? It's the son of man. What is the field? It's the world. What's the treasure? It's the kingdom. I think Jesus may be staying vague with this parable or similitude in order that it could be read both ways, actually. And so when we read it like that, what's happening? It's not about us finding Christ and giving everything away. It's actually about Christ finding us. And isn't this theologically true and rich? Does Paul not say in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross? Would he not pay the ultimate price for his beloved bride, the church? Is this not the work of the good shepherd that with joy he gives all that this could be his treasure. Why would he do something like that? Because he treasures his people. As a good shepherd treasures his sheep. It's one thing, and it's good to know the king. But how marvelous a thought to be the king's treasured possession. Has he not sacrificed his very love for us. Does the king not rejoice over his treasured possession? Brothers and sisters, he does. But secondly, we find this uh, from a different angle when we look at the second parable. In this parable of, uh, of the pearl of, of great value, it's the, the story of a merchant. Uh, their whole business is to go searching for 
a, a pearl of great value. And I think in a day and age where, uh, especially in the South, where uh, it's somewhat commonality and proper company to have pearls, um, we, we miss the, the value, actually, of what, what pearls really go for. In fact, in many cases, uh, according to, to various ancient sources, pearls were more valuable than gold. Um, one ancient historian uh, told the story that Cleopatra had a, a, a pearl that was so large and so clear it was worth tens of millions of dollars in her day. Uh, and, and so the, the context for even a single pearl is is something of, of magnificent value. If a merchant found even just one really fine pearl, that changed everything. And notice here uh, what, what happens with this. Here's our common interpretation again, that uh, the merchant being a common person goes out and, and they search for the pearl. The pearl is the, the kingdom or Christ or wisdom. That's been you know, understood variously. Uh, but, but notice what happens here. This merchant goes to buy this one fine pearl, and they don't just sell the pearls that they have, right? which was a common practice for merchants of this day to do. Uh, the early church father, Origen, points this out. Uh, merchants would go and they would trade. I'll trade you these five pearls for that really good one. But Origen points this out. They're not just trading their pearls. They are trading everything for this one pearl. Why? Because of its unsurpassing value. Most of the time we come to this parable, or similitude, and we think of it somewhat like a question about the cost of discipleship, and I think that's fair. But I think there's actually something more intrinsic to this section, and that's this. There's a confidence in the kingdom, or a gospel confidence. Notice what's happening in both. There's a willingness to sell everything with joy. Why? Because of the confidence that they have that what they're receiving is worth more than anything else. The great ancient preacher, John Chrysostom, one of the early uh, Eastern church fathers, he says this, as much as he holds the pearl, knows he's rich, but others don't, for he holds it in his hand. So also it is with the gospel. They that hold it know they're rich. Isn't that isn't that an interesting perspective? The, the, the words of gospel confidence that they who hold the gospel know they're rich. But what roots that kind of confidence? I think once more we can actually come back to this section and reread it, reinterpret it, that actually the ones seeking to find pearls can be us, yes, but it can also be Christ who left his throne in glory and humbled himself to the point of death. But notice, when we read it that way, it strikes a very certain theological chord. Christ's confidence that his sacrifice was not in vain. 
we can rejoice this morning knowing that Christ our King is seated on his throne and not thinking, was it really worth it? One question that never crosses his mind is, would I go and do it again? Was that the right choice to lay down my life for the sheep? There's rich confidence coming from Christ that his work and his sacrifice was good and true and right, and he has no regrets. That in infinite wisdom and an infinite love, he sits on his throne now with no shadow of turning in him, with confidence that he has and will love and keep his people for all eternity. That's the beauty of the kingdom. The reason we can come to this kingdom and say it's worth more than anything because Christ has proven it with his worth. As he's laid down his very life for this kingdom, we can say, Lord, something so amazing and so divine as your love, this demands my soul, my life, my love for you, who did not and was not ashamed of your brethren, came and laid down your life for me. Glory be to God in the highest, for the King of kings, the Prince of peace, sits and rules now, smiling over his people. Let us go to him now in prayer. Christ, our King, our great intercessor, our high priest. How marvelous to think, O oh Lord, that you would lay down your life for us. That of all the things that you value in this world the most, you show objectively that the thing that you treasure above all else is redeemed people for yourself, a bride, a body. So, Lord, we come now with joy in minds and hearts. With joy, we come to fellowship with you at your table, to feast with our King who loves us with a steadfast love that knows no end. And so, Lord, we pray that through these simple and ordinary means of bread and wine, and through your Spirit and by faith, you would fellowship with us now and that we would have a sampling and a foretaste the glory that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.